Today is a monumental day. It is the very first episode of the Repair and Recovery podcast. Now, initially, the first episode was supposed to be called Hello, My Name Is, and it was going to give family members and those who think that they have a substance use or misuse disorder um, some clarifications on what that might look like, the help available to people that may be impacted by that, be it the person misusing the substance or the family member. But today happens to be April 30th. It is National Honesty Day. And I thought it was a perfect day for me, Kelly, to kick off the podcast. I'm going to be doing it solo, so you're not going to hear my professional counterpart. I am here to share my story because something I've learned over the last few years, and more specifically, the last few months, is that your story is your power. Your story could change the life of another person. Your story could give someone strength to get out of a bad situation. Your story could give someone hope that things will and can get better. Your story could also motivate someone to seek the help they really need. And that's why I'm here to share my story. My name is Kelly. Some people also call me Sarah. So call me Kelly, call me Sarah, call me what you will. I am a radio personality in North Carolina, but I'm also an adult child of an alcoholic. Now, I don't remember much about my father because he only was really in my life for the first four or five years. Um, But what I do remember is a lot of chaos in my household. Um, my dad would disappear when he would finally re- uh, when he would finally reemerge. My mother and he would engage in a fight that became scary. There was yelling. I was young. I didn't really get it. What I do remember clearly is leaving in the middle of the night with a backpack on my back, holding my mom's hand, walking down a small street in Pennsylvania to a payphone to call the family to pick us up. It was shortly thereafter that my mother and father decided to separate and my dad moved to Miami. Now my father, as I understand it, was likely an alcoholic. And that's why he would disappear for long spans of time. And the alcoholism and the question of where he was would cause fights between my mother and father, as you can imagine. Now, growing up in this environment, I didn't think it really impacted me because he was only around for four or five years. But as I grew up and I became older and more self-aware, I started to see patterns within myself. Relationships and the people I was choosing to be in relationships with were people that weren't the nicest people. Or they were people that were suffering from some substance use, misuse disorder, be it drugs or alcohol. I always seemed to be drawn to the men that needed to be fixed and I came equipped with my toolbox because somehow I thought I could fix them. Now my therapist and I have discussed this in detail and you know there's a theory that maybe little Kelly was looking for these men to repair them to kind of make good for 
the fact that my father wasn't in my life much and that I couldn't help my father as a child. Um, I think that I'm just repeating a cycle that I learned. My mother chose this man. He came into my life and the chaos that I experienced at the, you know, age of four and five was enough for me to deem that acceptable and normal. So when it came time for me to seek out a relationship and someone to spend my life with, of course, it ended up being someone that admits to being an alcoholic and also suffers from severe substance use disorder. I remember when I met him, but before I had met the man I married, there were other guys before that, guys with gambling addictions, um, men that were addicted to internet porn, men that liked to drink way too much and probably would be considered alcoholic. But it was this man that I met in 2010 that seemed to be different than all the others. As I think back, I remember fondly, he was so attentive. He would send me the most adorable text messages. The thing about him was, after all the crappy guys I had met and dated, he was different because I never wondered where I stood with him. I didn't ever wonder if he was out trying to date other women or if he was just playing me. I always knew his intentions were clear. He wanted to be with me. He had eyes only for me. And I think that that's really what hooked me on him. It wasn't long into our relationship that I started to notice a couple things where he would come home from working out of town and he would have um, a paper bag that had these two cans of Four loco in them. Now, Four loco back in 2010 also had caffeine in it. It had a stronger amount of alcohol. It was like a malt, disgusting drink that they, you know, you could buy at, you know, one of the convenience stores. And he would drink those. Um, and as I noticed, as our relationship went on, sometimes he would have one open in the car or before we would go to a concert or an event, he would feel the need to pound a six pack. Now, was he just pre-gaming and saving money because beer at a concert is like $12 for like three ounces or was there a problem? I remember going to Philadelphia to see my family and to introduce him to them for the first time. This was a city he'd never been to. And the majority of the time after sightseeing, he wanted to spend his time in the bar drinking and drinking and drinking. I got really tired. It was a long day. We were on our feet. We were walking through Philly. I was trying to show him as much as I could in a little bit of time. And he just wanted to keep drinking and stay out till all hours. That wasn't who I was. I was a woman happy in a relationship that didn't want to oons oons at the bar and hang out and get plastered. I think that's when I really started to realize there, there was an issue. Now, I told you my father was what I suspect to be an alcoholic, and that's what my family believes. Um, but as a child, I didn't really understand what an alcoholic was. I do remember in high school, in health class, writing a lengthy paper on alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs. So I had a basic knowledge, but it wasn't until I met him that I really started to see what alcoholism was. This man was brilliant. 
um, got almost a perfect score on the SAT. He graduated early from high school, was in the gifted program, took AP classes. He majored in chemistry in college and during his grad studies was chosen as one of the students to go on the NOAA expeditions to study water samples all around Japan and in the Pacific Ocean. Now they're not picking just anyone for that. And as our relationship progressed, I had already become so deeply involved that it was hard for me to get up and leave because I felt like I'd be abandoning him in his time of need. And I wouldn't want someone to do that to me. I remember in 2010, Thanksgiving, his mother came over to my apartment and we had Thanksgiving there. He had to run out because we ran out of something needed to make one of the items. And she said to me, is he drinking with you? And I said, well, we have, you know, wine every now and again. You know, it's not a big deal. We don't really drink that much. And she said, he should not drink. He is an alcoholic. He has been to rehab. And then she proceeded to tell me that he had been violent before to her and one of his former girlfriends in a drunken rage. Talk about a big wake me up. But I thought perhaps he was a changed man. Perhaps he had controlled his drinking uh, to the point that he could drink again and not be an alcoholic. That's where I was wrong because I didn't understand that once you are an alcoholic, you're always going to be an alcoholic. Once you have alcohol use disorder, you're always going to have it. The great thing is, if you're getting treatment, you're going to rehab, you're going to intensive outpatient therapy, you're going to one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy, you're going to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholism could go into remission and you could live a normal life and be sober. In 2011, we got engaged and began planning our wedding. I feel like this is getting really long, so I'm going to start giving you the more summarized version. Um, we had planned to get married in October of 2011, but work had gotten crazy for me, so we ended up pushing it back to April 20th of 2012. His mother was battling lung cancer, and during the summer of 2011, she ended up passing away, and it was that moment that the alcoholism and whatever else, because I think there was a lot more going on, really spiraled fast. He got a large sum of money from her life insurance and instead of paying off the home that she left that we could live in, he spent it frivolously on bottles of Dom Perignon and high-end alcohol and high-end champagne at restaurants and fancy dinners. He would buy me amazing presents. I always wanted a Louis Vuitton, and by golly, I got one. I got a wallet too, and another Louis Vuitton. The man even took me and bought me a car and paid off my old car and paid for the new one in cash. What was this? Wow, I was a real princess, right? No, because what happened was every time one of those gifts were given, the car, the Louis Vuitton bag, there were consequences that I had to pay. Those material items were almost ways for him to force me to put blinders on and not question his drinking or not begin to ask questions about should I be in this relationship. 
He always said to me, I treat you better than anyone else. And I treat you like a princess. Here's the thing. If a man or a woman or whoever is really treating you like a prince or princess, they don't need to tell you because you already know. If someone needs to tell you that they're treating you well, it's because they likely aren't treating you well. As we got into 2012, the drinking just continued to get worse. He bought a gun in late 2011 and he would just play with that gun in a drunken state and flip it around and load it and unload it and clean it in front of me and it was very intimidating and scary. I remember a point where I had to call 911 because he was making veiled threats that he was gonna kill himself. He was forced into detox. And that was my first experience with someone needing to medically detoxify from alcohol. I don't think it was until this point that I really realized how bad it was. Now I'd seen him go through withdrawal before, but I thought it was just a prolonged hangover. So I would get him like chicken noodle soup and Gatorade and saltines and just make sure he was okay. Little did I know that alcohol withdrawal could actually kill someone if they end up going into a seizure. As 2012 went on, it was hard. We were planning this wedding that was mere months away. I remember we ordered our invitations. They came in the mail and we had to send them out pretty quick because we were kind of running behind. It was like as soon as those invitations hit the mail, the shit hit the fan. It was that weekend that we had gone out to the melting pot in one of his favorite places because they had really expensive Dom Perignon and all the other expensive liquor he could buy to show that he had money and power. That Saturday, I was supposed to go with my best friend to look for bridesmaid gowns. And I came and I picked her up and I said, so we're not gonna go look at bridesmaid gowns today. And she's like, um, it's like a month until your wedding or two months until your wedding we need to get that done and I'm like we need to look for apartments and that came as a shock to her now she knew that there was some kind of incidents going on she had witnessed some of them herself and she'd come running when I needed her and I mean I can never repay her for all the time she has been there during these crisis events but we looked for apartments and I said to her, I think that it is going to come to the point where I'm going to need to leave him and I'm going to have to leave him really quickly. It was just a feeling, a gut feeling I had. Sure enough, after we looked at apartments and we had lunch, I went back to our home, uh, the house we got from his mother who passed away earlier uh, in 2011, and he was inebriated. When he was inebriated, he was mean, he was violent. The, face or the facial expressions he would have changed. It was like, I compared it to Jekyll and Hyde. It was like two different people. The sober man versus the man under the influence were two different people. And I remember there was a time when he was a happy drunk, but between 2010 and the death of his mom in 2012, the happy drunk went away and a violent drunk emerged. I remember very little about that day except being in the laundry room and him wrapping his hands around me and choking me, calling me fat and telling me I was a worthless bitch and that he was gonna kill me. 
my only thought was protect yourself not in a violent way but hug him love him tell him don't worry baby it's okay reassure him that you know you're just having a bad day tomorrow's another day let's just go sleep it off um and i tried to use that tactic to de-escalate things unfortunately it didn't work it just enraged him even more when i was trying to wrap my arms around him and hold him and tell him it would be okay and he threw me into a wall and told me to get out of the house i ran next door and i called 911 and that was the first time that he was arrested for domestic violence uh, assault on a female on me he spent some time in jail not very long and I just couldn't break contact with him, even though there was an order for us not to have contact. I remember taking him to rehab and driving four hours and thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. He's going to rehab. Little did I know he had been in rehab multiple times before. And when he got out of rehab, he just started drinking again. There was something different though. I felt relaxed. I felt at ease for 28 days. I didn't have to worry about him getting violent or him coming home drunk or him dying in a car accident because he was in a safe place. And the way he was talking, it seemed like he was moving in a positive direction. After the incident had happened though, I had moved out and separated myself from him, although we were trying to work it out while he was in rehab. Once he got out though, it became clear within days that he did not want to stay sober and he started drinking. And shortly thereafter, he started using pain medication um, and maybe heroin. I had my suspicions, but again, I never had concrete evidence then Although now thinking back with the knowledge that I have now, I think that the writing was on the wall. I separated from him for all of 2012, although I would go and help him if he needed it. If he wanted a ride to detox or if he wanted to try another rehab, I was there to take him because I wanted nothing more than to have the man I fell in love with back. I wanted nothing more to see this man that had so much potential get back to living life and enjoying things like the beautiful blue sky, karate, time with his dogs, playing the piano, things that he had stopped doing because he was so lost in drinking and using drugs. In 2013, it was like the third day of January, he called me and he's like, I'm going to detox again. And I'm like, yep, I'm going to detox again. Because he had been there a lot in 2012, so I was skeptical. Um, but after a few days of being in detox, he called and said, I'm going into sober living. The guy that's been asking me to go to sober living or talking to me about sober living every time I've been to this detox facility, I'm actually going to go this time. I'm not going home after I get out of the hospital. They're picking me up and I'll need you to get some stuff for me from the house. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's a miracle. Seriously. This was a huge step for this man because... He literally wanted to drink and then he would get so sick he would need a detox. He'd go to detox to feel better just to come back to that hole that was the Gastonia home that just sucked him in to this deep depression and darkness. And he would just drink again and just go back to doing what he was doing. But in 2013, that didn't happen. Instead, he went to sober living and lived there for six months. He worked a rigorous 12-step program uh, through Alcoholics Anonymous. He worked within the fellowship of the sober living community he lived in. He started acting and doing the things 
he used to do. He had hobbies. He had things that he liked to do that weren't drinking or using drugs. I'd gotten him back and it was a miracle. And I took that and ran because I prayed for it and here it was. And I thought that maybe that was a sign from God that, you know, I needed to proceed with this relationship and things could work out. As it turns out, in 2013, the summer, I came home from work and I knew he was intoxicated just by the way he was speaking. One thing I learned going to Al-Anon meetings is when someone is intoxicated or under the influence, there's no getting through to them. There's no speaking to them because you cannot be rational with an irrational person. Everything you're saying is going in one ear and out the other, or they're just basically going to turn it around and deflect and blame it on you. That's always what happened. In 2013, July, he did something very scary. He threw me into the wall again and he choked me. I called 911 because I didn't want to put up with that and I had had enough. Because I called 911, he ran into his closet and he got a knife and he proceeded to slit his throat in front of me and tell me that I would watch him bleed out and die because I ruined his life by calling 911. He wanted to torture me, torture me. That's how bad his disease had overtaken him. He went to jail for 30 days, but I didn't want to ruin his life, so I dropped the charges. I wanted him to be able to use his education and use his mind to get a job that he deserved. I didn't want him to have to work some really bad job because he had a domestic violence assault on a female conviction on his record. So I protected him. But by protecting him, I just allowed him to continue this behavior. He was good for quite some time. Um, it wasn't until 2016 that things really started to get out of hand. I realized he wasn't acting right. He was working out of town. He had no money, but he was working all these extra hours. There were nights that he said he would call and he wouldn't. And I always knew if he didn't do what he said he would do, that that was always an indicator that he was probably likely drinking or doing something else. In this case, it was using heroin. The way he tells the story is he had back pain and one of the subcontractors at a job in Raleigh said, oh, I have something for your back. Here's $200 worth of heroin. Because yeah, the first time you try heroin, you're gonna buy $200 worth of heroin, right? I mean, that makes total sense. Especially if you're a man who's been quote unquote sober for, he was like saying two years or something. So I knew something was up and he knew the jig was up. He knew I was on to him. So he tried to kill himself by injecting a lethal dose of heroin um, in a public parking garage here in Charlotte. It was a big deal. He called me at work. He was making veiled threats. The crisis team, the negotiation team, multiple cops had to show up and coach me through dealing with him on the phone to try to de-escalate him again from killing himself. It was like he wanted to torture me again <laughs> in the way that he was behaving. I remember they took him off uh, to the hospital when they found him in the parking garage and he was held um, on a psych hold and then he was sent to one of the psych hospitals here in Charlotte uh, for treatment. And they diagnosed him as having severe depressive disorder, 
So they put him on antidepressant medications and some other medications to help him with sleep. When he came back, I was kind of apprehensive because I felt disgusted that the man I loved and married was shooting heroin into his veins. You know, I judged him and I thought of him as a junkie and an addict and disgusting. And thinking back now, using words like that did not help the situation. Someone who's using or misusing substances already feels horrible about themselves. And using those kind of hateful terms just further dig them into that hole. So now I know better not to use those words. But it's something I've learned recently. You would think after that incident that he would have gotten it together. In 2016, there would be periods of time where he would act shady. He'd be in shady parts of town that he didn't belong in, that I know, you know, drug activity occurred in. He got fired from his job, and he wouldn't tell me why, although I have my suspicions. I remember the night before his birthday, he got hammered and called me from a parking lot and asked me to come pick him up. And I came there, and he was sitting in his car with a huge bottle of vodka, chugging it. I was in habit, and I'm like, you need to throw the bottle out. You need to get in my car. You need to go home, and you could sleep it off. And I had to wrestle the, the bottle of vodka out of his hand. He got in the car. I took him home. I got him a Gatorade, and I said, just drink this. Go to sleep, and I'll check on you in a little bit. But he kept coming out and, like, calling me names and trying to start something with me. And, and I didn't want to do that. So I was out watching TV. I was doing schoolwork. I was doing something that was keeping me busy because I didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to stir the pot because I knew that that was not the time to discuss what had happened because he was still inebriated. I felt very unsafe in the way he was speaking to me and the way he was acting. So I called my best friend and I called his best friend. And they came over to kind of help again de-escalate the situation. He called me into the bedroom to talk to me. And he's like, why are they here? And I'm like, they're here because I, I, I don't feel safe. And I'm like, honestly, I just, I don't think I could do this anymore. I think it's time that you and I separate and we just need to be divorced. You don't want to stay sober and that's, that's fine. But I don't want to live this life. This is not the way I want to live. And he responded by going into the office. We had a two-bedroom apartment. And he went into the closet and got his shotgun and started loading it because he planned to kill me and him. As someone who had already been physically abused by the man and someone who's already seen his patterns, I kind of knew what to expect. So when he had that gun in his hand and it was loaded, I was throwing all 170 pounds on him in the best way I could and calling my friends in for backup to get that damn gun out of his hand. I wrestled with him. He choked me and he hit me and we wrestled and I scratched him. I did whatever I could because I will be damned if I was going to die that night because he drank again. I wasn't going out like that. So I was getting that gun and I did and my friends helped me and again we called the cops. Now he wasn't charged because they took it as a suicide attempt. So he was sent to mental health where he spent quite a few days. At this point, next day, I immediately started looking for an apartment and I moved out. 
when he came out of mental health, I picked him up and I took him back to the apartment we shared. And I said, you could stay here until the lease is up in February. And then you're going to have to find somewhere else to live because we're not doing this anymore. Now, I still talk to him on a regular basis and I still made sure he ate and, you know, I cared about him. I really did. And I, I wanted him to get better so bad. I wanted him to get better so bad that if there was a way that I could have worked his program for him, if I could have gone to rehab for him, if I could have waved a magic wand, I would have because that's how badly I wanted him to get better. But as 2017 went on, things got worse. I was dating because we were separated and that experience wasn't so hot and he was still around and I was letting him stay with me because I felt bad. I didn't want the man to be homeless. He was sleeping in his car. And here I was in my nice apartment while the man slept in his friggin' car. Homeless. That killed me. So I let him sleep on my couch. Then eventually we worked it out. And I said, I'm going to go to therapy because I know I have things I need to work on. And I think you should go to therapy too. And he agreed. And then we said once we had both been in therapy independently we'd come together and do some sort of couples therapy together i went to therapy and he never did although it was free we met our deductible he had every excuse in the world well i can't go to therapy i work long hours or i'm so tired after work i can't as summer came i had been going to therapy at this point for probably two months and i was working through all of this with my therapist that I deserved more. I deserved a partner, someone who would come home from work and want to eat dinner with me and watch a movie with me. Not someone who was going to come home from work, go in the bathroom for three hours to take a shower, quote unquote, um, and then come and fall asleep on the couch while eating. I knew something was up. His behavior had changed. Again, the money situation. He wasn't making his car payment, although he was making a lot of money. I remember waking up one night and coming out into the living room and finding him passed out on the couch. And he had his shirt half off and one arm out. And I found that bizarre. And I was like, okay, that's, that's really not normal to fall asleep with your shirt half off. And why is only one arm out? And then I would go into the bathroom in the middle of the night to use, uh, to pee. And I'd find his belt in the bathroom on the carpet really small like to fit his arm so I started seeing the writing on the walls it got to a point where I basically told him I know that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing you're not going to your meetings you're not working with your sponsor I've asked you to go to therapy you have not I don't know that you're taking your psych medication as you're supposed to I don't know that you've seen your doctor like you're supposed to and I'm really concerned and I see your pattern. I know your pattern. We've been together long enough and you're coming, the circle's coming around to that big, something big is about to happen. And I'm telling you this out of love that you need to get help now because you're gonna end up losing everything when this event happens again. And I'd been talking to my therapist about it, that his pattern of behavior was There'd be little clues, little clues, little clues. The clues would start to get bigger and then bam, this huge event would happen. It would be dramatic and over the top and crazy and scary. I remember another conversation I had with him discussing what sobriety is. So we both had a clear understanding. I said, sobriety means 
not using any alcohol or any uh, prescription medications that are not prescribed to you by a physician. If you're currently not prescribed the medication, you should not be buying it on the streets and taking it. So I was like, are we clear? If you don't want to be sober, again, you could go out and do whatever you want and I'll let you be and I understand and I'll wish you well. No, no, baby, I want to be sober. It got to the point where I started having to search him every time he came into the house because I would find like little burned napkins or water bottles and rubbing alcohol and ripped up t-shirts with blood on them in the bathroom. I remember one day coming home like a crazy woman on a Saturday when I knew he wouldn't be home and unscrewing every friggin' faceplate on every electrical plug in the house looking. Anywhere I thought that it could be, I looked. I googled it like DEA style drug search of a house. Common places people hide drugs and I looked and I found some paraphernalia. I don't know what that is. That's not mine. Oh, that's snot. No, that's not snot. That's burn marks. Within a few days of that, that I remember waking up again in the middle of the night and feeling next to me and he wasn't there and I came out into the living room and he was standing in the kitchen nodding out. Literally standing and nodding. He couldn't even stand up or keep his eyes open. He was just falling. And I remember taking a video of it so I could show it to him. Like, I'm not crazy. What I would guess based on the other things found in the home, heroin. And he was nodding out. But days later, again, the odd behavior, spending hours in the bathroom and then going down into the parking garage to smoke in his car because we lived in a non-smoking community i remember him being gone for a long time and i was like what in the hell so i went down i saw his car and i saw his head in the driver's seat i walked up on the side and there he was i saw the 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 orange cap and the needle injecting himself or about to and i knocked on the window and i said gotcha and i opened the door to the car because i had the code because it's a ford and I said, you are not to come in the house. You're not getting any of your things. You'll have to make arrangements elsewhere. I don't want anything to do with you. That's it. We're getting a divorce. I'm done with you. I, I can't do this anymore. Do not follow me. And he got out of the car and he grabbed me by the wrists. And he said, you're crazy and you didn't see anything. And he used some other explicit, explicit words. I called 911 and I had to go with an officer to get a warrant for his arrest. Um, but he was arrested and he spent, I think, like two and a half weeks or two weeks in jail. I got a 50B on October 10th and I have not looked back. I put up with a lot of things and I put myself in grave danger. Multiple times this man could have killed me, killed himself. The PTSD that I'm trying to work through from the events that I witnessed are things that I may never get over. And there are days when I am overcome with grief about the situation that it brings me to my knees and it makes me cry. I pray for him every day. I pray that he'll have a moment of clarity or some sort of intervention where someone will say, you know, this man has a pattern and he really needs help and he gets the help that he needs. Not 28 days of treatment. This man needs long-term treatment. His brain is so 
the chemicals are all off because of prolonged substance use uh, through drugs and alcohol that he can't make a decision on his own. I firmly believe that. He's just too sick. He's too far gone. And that's really sad. I don't have ill will towards him. I'm angry that he vilified me and had his friends lie about me um, during the domestic violence hearing. And I'm angry that the charges were dismissed. I wasn't allowed to bring up anything that happened in the past. I wasn't able to have any of my friends speak on my behalf. They weren't even allowed to bring up previous police reports and assault incidents with him. None of that mattered. I was the bad guy. Uh, his friends made it seem like I planned this, like planned to get him caught using drugs to go to jail. That, that was never my intention. I don't think the man deserves to be in jail. Jail is not a place where people with substance use and misuse disorders really get help. So no, I don't think this man deserves to be in jail or prison, but I do think that he needs to be in psychotherapy and long-term drug rehabilitation, not 30 days, 90 days maybe. How about six months and then sober living, an extended program like that? That's my story. And I think through it all, I've experienced, you know, the five stages of grief. I cry, I plead with God still, and I ask him, you can't let him die of this. You can't, you can't let him die of this. I will give you five years off of my life if you send him a God shot that finally gets him the help that he needs. I will always love that man, even though he did some really bad things. But you have to understand that addiction is a brain disease. It takes over the brain. It takes over your emotions. It takes over your personality. It makes you do things you wouldn't normally do. And I just hope that people can be more empathetic towards those that suffer. People that misuse alcohol or are using heroin, it's not a moral failing. It's a brain disease, which means it should be treated as such. We're not shaming people that have cancer. We're not shaming people that are on insulin to treat their diabetes. But yet we oftentimes, and I have in the past, shamed people that were using medication-assisted treatment to deal with their opioid abuse disorder. I don't do that anymore because now I know. I've met people on both sides. I've met people that were in that situation and misused drugs for many years and then got help and got clean. And now they're advocating to break the stigma, just like people are advocating to break the stigma for mental health. So that's what I'm doing. I'm gonna use my voice and I'm gonna use my story as my power to reach out to other people that are the wives, the daughters, the girlfriends, the sisters, the cousins, the best friend of the person with a substance misuse disorder and help you navigate recovery and things that have worked for me. The plan is to bring in experts because as of right now, I'm not an expert, but through all this, I feel as though God has called upon me to give back. The greatest gift I ever gave myself was going to therapy and finding a therapist who helped empower me to make change and finally leave my toxic situation. And I wanna empower someone else that way. And I want them to know that they don't have to feel guilt for leaving. 
They don't have to feel shameful because they were with that person. They don't have to feel any of those things because there are a lot of people in your shoes and you are not alone. You are not alone. That's the biggest thing to always remember. There's support out there. Al-Anon, Naranon, Celebrate Recovery. Um, there are other support groups. They're online. They're everywhere now. Just Google it. One-on-one -on -one therapy. That's something that I think really helped me and really facilitated change within me. If I hadn't gone to therapy, I don't know that if I ever would have been able to connect the dots and really ever cut him off and be in a place where I could say that it's been almost seven months since we communicated and that's okay. Do I have hope for him? Yes, because as long as the man is still breathing, there's still hope that something's going to click one day and he's going to really get the help he needs and he's going to be an amazing person and have a happy, healthy life with someone else. And that's what I want for him. I've let go of the anger and the hatred. I've placed that more within his disease. I hate the disease. I don't hate the person. I guess what I'm saying is sometimes you have to walk through hell and really struggle to find your purpose in life. And if that's what I did over these last few years in being in a relationship with someone who misused alcohol and drugs, then I get it. God had a plan for me and this was the way for me to see that plan come to fruition. I'm in school to get my clinical mental health counseling degree, my master's uh, with a specialty in addiction counseling. I'm creating this podcast to help reach other people that might not be ready to go to therapy. They might not be ready to walk into a medical facility or a treatment facility and ask for help. And they might not know if they're even really someone who needs this help. But this podcast is here to reach you and to let you know that you're not alone. You're not alone. I am here for you. And the amazing people that we have that are going to be behind this podcast as regular co-hosts and as specialty guests are going to blow your mind. So many stories of hope and inspiration and a lot of knowledge on how you can save yourself and learn to live a healthier life in recovery and a bigger meaning in life and a bigger purpose to your life. That's ultimately what the Repair and Recovery podcast will do. You check out our blog, repairinrecovery.com.